Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today. You've certainly got a, a much stronger position than you did under the law as it stood a couple of months ago when we've been applying the multifactorial test for the last 20 years. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks. The podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 343 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The distinction between contractors and employees has always been hazy, but hasn't really changed that much for a long time. We had a list of factors to look at the totality of the relationship, the actual relationship, not what the contract says, but what the totality of the relationship actually looks like. But all this has completely changed now with two high court cases, not federal court cases, but high court cases. The first case is the CFMEU versus construct case, usually referred to as the personnel contracting case. And the second one is the GEMSEC case. We will go through both court cases in the next episode. In this episode today, let's discuss what has actually changed and what the rules, the new rules, will look like. Here is Sam Harvery of Lex and Lex Lawyers in Sydney with some insights. The lay of the land for about the last 20 years had involved an accepted wisdom which provided for what was called a multifactorial test. That test involved looking at the entirety of the relationship. So not just when the contract was entered into between the two parties. And it involved considering a whole host of different factors that might point one way or the other. And so what the courts were looking at were things like what the parties themselves called each other. So whether they had referred to themselves as contractor or employee in the contract, they would look at things like level of control. That was a, a particularly important element. And by that, what I mean is, for example, who was in charge of directing the work, when the work was to be performed, and how the work was to be performed. Because an employer typically controls how an employee performs work, whereas a contractor is typically more self-directed. Other factors involved included whether there was an ability to delegate the work to a third-party subcontractor, because obviously an employee can't bring in a third party to do their job for them, and who supplied any tools and equipment required to do the work. So those are some of the factors. There were more, but it was a weighing up exercise of these types of factors and then an evaluative judgment by a court based on those factors, based on a determination of whether the factors pointed more in one direction or the other. This term, entirety of the relationship, that very much reminds me of the very first podcast we did 342 episodes ago about payroll tax and their The Revenue Office of New South Wales also very much spoke about entirety of the relationship. And so I think part of the confusion is also that there are many different aspects that look at this relationship. So you have payroll texts that look at the um, distinction between employee and contractor. You have fair work. You have the ATO. Is there anybody else who is vested in this distinction between employee and contractor? 
payroll tax, fair work, and ATO. Yeah, and the ATO is also interested because of superannuation, because they administer the superannuation scheme. So it's relevant in that yes. sense as well for them. But you, as an employment lawyer, you are most interested in how fair work approaches this distinction, correct? That's correct. But the tests that the courts had applied was a generic test that apart from in relation to superannuation, which has a special test, it was a generic test that applied throughout the common law. So the test was relevant, you know, for the purposes of the ATO in relation to the withholding of taxation. It was also relevant to the Fair Work Ombudsman and the Fair Work Commission, but the test was was the same across the board. Do these three players now actually work together and have the same rules? Payroll tax in the different states, fair work in ATO, do they work together and they actually now are creating one set of rules and legislation to make this distinction? Well, that's effectively what the court has done. The court has established a, a new set of rules that will apply to each of these bodies and they will all now need to adopt these rules as set down by the court and apply, apply those rules in their you know, individual spheres. So again, these recent cases, they're not applicable only in the fair work jurisdiction and they're not applicable only in relation to you know, annual leave and that sort of thing. They're applicable across the board. So for all three, we look at what they call each other, the level of control, when and how the person can work, whether they can employ subcontractors, whether they need to bring their own tools, all those factors. All three government bodies look at this. That's right. This was the old way of doing things, applying this multifactorial test and looking at the totality of the relationship. These cases that we'll be discussing have changed the way that we look at the cases. You just said totality of relationship, and that is actually the word they used in the first episode, totality of the relationship, not entirety of the relationship, but totality of the relationship. But I interrupted you. Sorry, Sam. No, that's okay. So essentially the courts, they say the whole of the relationship, the, to the totality of the relationship, the entirety of the relationship, they were all talking about the same thing. They were all talking about looking at the way that the work was performed in practice so they wouldn't merely look at the contract. They would look at how the contract was actually performed and what ultimately played out for however long the relationship lasted. And so then you would get to the end of the relationship for whatever reason, let's say there's a termination or a resignation or what have you. And then you would have applicants who would bring claims and essentially contend that the entire time they were employees or you would have complaints made to some of the bodies that you've been talking about And those bodies would conduct their investigations and find, no, they were actually employees, not contractors. Cases that we'll be talking about today say is that whole approach was wrong. You don't look at the totality of the relationship. You look only at the words of the contract, assuming there is a written contract. Really? That's right. That's a huge change then. It is. It's a massive change. It completely reforms the way that we've looked at the divide between employees and contractors over the last 20 years. That is mind-boggling. So that mean, basically means the parties are now completely free to decide whether it's a contractor relationship or an employee relationship. Provided that they get the contract right, they're safeguarded. There are some claims that will still be available to employees. The High Court in these decisions has left the door open a little bit. So they've said if, for example, an employee can make a claim that there was a variation to the contract or that there was a waiver to the contract or that there was what's called an estoppel, 
those types of claims could be made to try and rebut what's contained in the written contract. But they've essentially adopted a practice of contract is king. So if the parties in their written document have constructed a relationship of contracting in terms of the rights and duties contained in that contract, then the court will find that it is a, contra a contract of independent contracting, and they won't look at anything that happens subsequently. That, and that's the rejection of the the approach that's been adopted for the last 20 years. At the moment, it doesn't matter so much because we have a huge shortage of workers and every cafe, every small business is desperately looking for staff. So businesses are less likely to shaft the people who are working for them. But longer term, when the tables turn and it's more again an employer market, then this very much puts employees at a disadvantage because any business can basically say now, I want you to come to work every day from eight to five, but here's the contract and it says you are a contractor, so you don't get super, you don't get annual leave, you don't get long service leave, you don't get sick leave, but you basically have to work like an employee. And because the contract says you are a contractor and hence you don't have any employment entitlements, that's how it is. So once the employment market changes, this will very much disadvantage workers. Well, that's right. And part of the problem, in my view, with these cases is they ignore the power differential in terms of bargaining positions between, for example, a big company and someone who would otherwise be on minimum wage. Those two parties are not able, they don't have the same bargaining power. Someone who desperately needs a job is going to take what's put on the table. And so they'll sign a contract if they have to merely so that they have an income. We're arriving at a situation where provided, and it's not simply labeling the relationship contractor, the contract needs to be set up in a way so that the duties align with what a contractor relationship looks like. The rights and duties must look like what a contracting relationship looks like. But provided that a big company does that, they're going to be in a much stronger position than they had been for the last 20 years. Because what ultimately happens in the way that the work performed isn't important. What is important is the contract. So just going back to what I mean when I talk about, you know, the rights and duties, what these cases say, so both personnel contracting and JAMSEC, is, is they're essentially talking about the level of control and the level of integration of the individual into the company. And so provided that the contract maintains a certain degree of arm's length and, and on, on its face allows the, the individual a certain level of discretion in the way in which they perform their work and where they perform it, et cetera, it's going to be much easier for them to avoid claims for employment entitlements. And it will mean that there are people who are doing you know, low-level work for not much money, who don't get annual leave, who don't get personal leave, and who may not get super. Again, super has a slightly def different definition and it falls into a slightly different category. Yeah, I find this a watershed moment. I am speechless, I have to say, and that doesn't happen very often. It means that McDonald's and similar employers, they can put their entire workforce down as contractors. And then the uh, contract will just say, you can come and go as you like, or you have to do is serve 100 hamburgers a day, you know, just put something to paper But the actual day today is, okay, Sally, tomorrow I want you here from nine to one or tomorrow I want you come in for lunch. You know, the actual working relationship is then very, very different. I just find it mind boggling. 
Well, that would be where some of the where the, the High Court has left the door ever so slightly ajar for some other types of arguments that I've referred to. So I was talking, for example, about waiver or about variation of a contract. Also, another type of argument would be sham contract. And so if an if a you know nominal contractor who was in every way an employee argued that the whole scheme that had been set up by the employer, in this example, McDonald's, was in fact a sham. And if they could establish to a court satisfaction that this was, you know, a deliberate scheme designed to vert the law in a, in a sense, then a court would in all likelihood, in my view, still find that they were an employee. So when it comes to companies like McDonald's, I think it would be unlikely that they, they go down that type of path because there would also be a, a, a great degree of kind of public outcry if they did as well. It's more companies that fall into the grey area are much more well protected than they ever were before. So Uber, gig economy companies, so Uber, Deliveroo, they now have much firmer footing to stand on than they previously did. Any company that engages in logistics, so truck companies, for example, one of these cases involved truck drivers who were treated as contractors and the court held them to be contractors. It's more cases falling into the grey area. They're now much more likely to be held to be contracting relationships than, than employment relationships. But I wouldn't say that every employer in the nation can all of a sudden create you know, effectively a sham and call their employees contractors and get away with it. Yes, I agree with you. The large companies that have a brand and need to worry about their public perception, they are less likely. I agree with you. And by the way, I only picked McDonald's out of the air. Of course, McDonald's has never implied in any way that they would do this. I just, you know, was thinking of a name and that name came to my head. But I do agree with you. The big companies and the big brands are less likely to do this. I think where it very much will happen is small business. While it disadvantages employees to some extent, it will help small business because it will make it a lot less risky for small business to employ people. And so I think yeah, most people working for small business will probably move to a contractor position. I shouldn't say most, but I can imagine there will be a big move to contractor positions in small business. I think there's a distinct chance of that happening. Um, and my concern is that it becomes exploitative, you know, in the way that we've discussed in terms of it being used as a as a reason to avoid people's entitlement. And so, for example, for women, it can become very risky. They, they will have very little protection. I mean, it sounds like a very old-fashioned argument, but for example, when, when a woman is expecting a child or something, if they are a contractor, they have no entitlements whatsoever and they can basically be let go at any time. At any moment, they are not fast enough anymore on their legs. Suddenly they are gone. There are protections against sex discrimination which apply to contractors. So women in that scenario would still have those protections. But I agree with you that by virtue of being treated as an independent contractor, they do have a lot less uh, entitlements generally. They don't have an entitlement to parental leave, for example. And so prima facie, they're not entitled to take time off work when they have a child. There is a real risk 
that this ruling is ultimately misused in a sense. Yes. I find during COVID, and I mean, sorry, this becomes a bit of a political conversation now, but I find during COVID already, you could sense this divide because employees who were working for the big companies, they didn't lose a, a single cent of income during lockdown. They just continued working from home or they were paid anyway. It didn't really affect them. Whereas the people who were working for small businesses, they lost, they lost their jobs. They lost They were stood down. Lots of things happened to them. And I can imagine with this, the divide will even widen where the people who work for larger companies, they all have employee status. They're all well protected. They have all the protections that the law has designed for employees, whereas people working for small business are very exposed because now they're basically all, they, most of them will be contractors. I think that's a distinct possibility and it's just one of the the risks of the the high court taking this fairly black letter approach of treating, uh, as I said, the contract as king. It means that you'll have a scenario where people are entering into contracts that say one thing, and then in a practical sense, a person's required to do something else. So for example, a contract which on its face gives flexibility and discretion on the part of the individual performing the work, but then in reality, the person's required to be in the office every day or, or you know, the factory or whatever the workplace is, and they're required to be there nine to five, and they're totally under the instruction and direction of their employer or under the, the instruction and direction of the principal. The court, by taking that black letter law approach, they've sort of ignored the practical reality of the way in which work is often performed. I was very much arguing from the view of the employees before, of the workers before, but of course it puts small business in a much better position because it makes it a lot easier for them to bring people on without massive long-term consequences. So it should empower small business. It should make it easier to run a business with workers than it was before because you don't have so much small print to read anymore. Before you basically had to be you yeah, be really well worse than employment law to hire employees. That's exactly right. And so in terms of the small business scenario, it means you can provided you've got a watertight contract where the rights and duties are aligned with the work of a contractor rather than an employee, the way in which the work is performed is more reflective of a contractor than an employee you can be much more confident in going out and engaging people and not having the risk of uh, a claim being made down the track that the person was actually an employee the whole time and is therefore entitled to back pay for you know annual leave, long service leave, potentially redundancy pay, depending on how the relationship ended. It also removes the risk of unfair dismissal applications to some degree, you know, because those types of claims can only be made by employees. So it doesn't mean you will still have people who were contractors, according to the contract, who still make contentions that they were employees, and they'll rely on some of those, uh, that, that narrow sort of gap left open by the High Court in terms of claims left available to them to try and argue around the contract. But the position of the, the company, the small business is going to be much stronger than it previously was. Good. So the only argument open is basically that the contract was a sham contract and didn't actually reflect the relationship that existed. That's the only way out, basically. Not just that it didn't the reflect the relationship, but that it was almost a deliberate scheme to avoid the employment entitlement. So that's one argument. Another is uh, a variation. And so what that involves would be an argument that 
a, a contractor would say, well, yes, I signed a contract that said I was a contractor and it gave me the flexibility to perform my own work, you know, run my own business essentially. But at some point in the, let's say, 10 years that I was working for you, the relationship changed by the conduct of the parties and that was a variation to the contract. And I, from that date, became an employee. So that's a, an argument about variation. But th these haven't yet been explored because in these judgments, the judges have said, well, these are possible exceptions to the general rule, but they didn't arise in those cases. So they haven't yet been fleshed out and we don't actually have any precedence in terms of how that will work. Okay, so for a small business to be safe, there are basically three things. The first thing is have a contract. A lot of small business don't have employment contracts. Do you share that observation? Absolutely. And with this judgment, the importance and benefit of a written judgment is just increased tenfold. I mean, it is always important to have a written contract because it provides certainty. In the absence of a written contract, the other party can always create some arguments. It gives them wriggle room to come up with some creative arguments about what the nature of the relationship was and what the nature of their entitlements were. If you've got a written contract that's very clear and watertight, that's not the case because the parties are bound by the contract. But with this judgment now, it's become even harder to argue around that contract. The parties are essentially going, going to be confined by the contract and it's going to be much harder to establish an argument that a person who was for all intents and purposes, a contractor under the written terms of the contract was in fact an employee. I can imagine, but please confirm, I can imagine there are four pieces of advice. The first one is have a written contract, and this is a big thing. Most small business don't have written contracts. So the first thing is have a written contract. I can imagine the second piece of advice would be renew the contract, let's say, for example, once a year, so that it's not possible to claim a variation of the contract. If the contract is only a year old, then I think it's more difficult to argue that changed at some stage 10 years ago. The third piece of advice I can imagine is act as per contract. So don't create a different relationship to the one that is outlined in the contract. And then the fourth one I think is very important. And that is basically put the decision into the employee's hands. And so, for example, for us as accountants, rather than saying, I need you from nine to five every day, we would say, I need you to look after 100 clients. And when you do this and how you do this is up to you, of course, under my supervision, but I just pay you for the end result, something around those lines. And then that would make it safer to treat the person as a contractor. Do you agree? Did I miss something or am I heading in the wrong direction? No, no, essentially it. So it's about having a written contract in place, making sure the contract is up to date, providing as much flexibility as possible in the way in which and where the work is performed. Because again, going back to the inherent nature of what a what an independent contractor is, they're essentially someone who's contracted to perform services to you. They're, it's as though they're running their own business, business to business. And so that's why, for example, with the McDonald's, I appreciate it was an example, but going back to the McDonald's example, it's going to be harder for someone that makes burgers at McDonald's to be considered running their own business. Clearly, they're integrated into the business of McDonald's. But in taking the example of an accountant, it is um, possible to argue that they're sort of running their own accounting practice under your supervision, particularly if they're not required to be in the office nine to five every day, Monday to Friday, 
particularly if you're simply giving them work to do and requiring it to be done in their own time. If those types of factors are built into the contract, it's going to be much harder to ever argue that the person was in fact always an employee. A court's much more likely to find that they were a contractor based on these decisions of personnel contracting and Jamset. And one further thing I would add in terms of, you know, we talked about small businesses who often don't have contracts in place. It's never too late. The mere fact that you might be partway through a relationship with someone and you haven't documented it in a written contract doesn't mean that you can't bring in a written contract. And by doing that, you're just creating further certainty for yourself and and affording yourself some further protection. Just to add to what you just said, the contract should list, this is not an exclusive relationship. You're welcome to work for other people. The location is flexible. In, of course, in some cases, it's not like a cafe. The location is not flexible. But if you can, make the location flexible. And then most importantly, make the hours flexible so that the employee can determine the hours. In that case, you should have a strong position that this worker is a contractor. If that is what the contract says. You've certainly got a a much stronger position than you did under the law as it stood a couple of months ago when we'd been applying the multifactorial test for the last 20 years. You know, I can imagine in that type of scenario where it's a barista, it's still arguable that the barista is not really conducting their own business. And I can imagine the barista bringing a claim that the contract was essentially a sham and that the real nature of the relationship was employment. But again, the the cafe would have a much stronger footing than they ever did a a few months ago. Welcome back. So the contract is the all or nothing now. You determine whether somebody is a contractor or an employee based on the contract. And you only get away from the contract if you can show that the contract was either a sham or outdated. In the next episode, episode 344, let's talk with Sam Harvery about the two high court cases that actually changed all this, the Jamsec case and the personal contracting case. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks, or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of U.S. consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com brands to learn how it do. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands, and you could be the one talking instead of me.